There are some Sundays where I get excited because I know that there is no other church talking about what we're going to be talking about today. And I love that because when I grew up, you sort of got the the Sunday school group of stories that you would learn about as a kid. But the strangest thing happened, a lot of my church life, that continued into adulthood. And you only got the same set of stories that you got as a kid. All the big ones, you know, Noah's Ark, Joshua and the Wall of Jericho. And a lot of the churches that I went to didn't touch on all the other things in the Bible that were hard to understand or needed some explanation. So I always get excited when we're diving into something. And I know there's a good chance that a lot of us have never, ever had this unpacked before. We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in the order that the events actually happen so that we can see, understand, and hear from Jesus for ourselves the way that his word was put together rather than hearing it secondhand from someone else. And we're going to be in Luke 16 if you want to turn there. Last week we studied what many consider to be the greatest story ever told. Luke 15, it's the parable of the prodigal son and we were blown away by the incredible unexpected plot twist of grace and ending to the rebellious son story that nobody could have dreamed or expected to have happen. It's the glorious difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. The difference is grace, grace, and more grace. And this week, we're diving into one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the Bible. In this chapter as a whole, in Luke 16, Jesus is really talking about the issue of money and resources and how we should use both during our time on the earth. That's the overarching theme of the chapter. But there's also a rich and illuminating mystical level to one of the stories Jesus is going to share. And as a pastor, I have to decide what to share and what not to share, but I feel compelled to make sure that I share with you the mystical side of Luke 16 because it provides the student of God's word with great insights into several other areas of the Bible. I hope you've all had that experience where you come to understand something in the Bible and suddenly something somewhere else in the Bible makes sense because you have the right piece of information. That's what today's teaching is hopefully going to do for us. So what we're going to do is study the mystical side of Luke 16 today, and then next week we will look at the overarching, more practical side of Luke 16. We're going to be referencing some corners of the Bible that you may not even know exist, and because of the limited time that we have today, I'm not going to be able to fully explain every verse I'm going to reference, but my hope is that if I share something that makes you go, what? I've never heard that before. It will provoke you into researching that part of the Bible for yourself. Even if I can antagonize you into researching the Bible, I'd take that too. I'm going to drop a lot of breadcrumbs for you to follow in your own study time. And if you haven't listened to our Revelation series, I encourage you to pick up a free jump drive in the back that's got the whole series on it. Because that's going to give you another level of understanding on some of the things we're talking about today. Well, I hope that introduction and disclaimer has you interested as to what we're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's fascinating because it deals with complex questions you may or may not have ever thought about, like... What happened to Old Testament saints, those believers who died before Jesus ever died for their sins? Where do non-believers go when they die? If there's a a future judgment coming for them, it doesn't really make sense that the non-believer would be sent to hell, then called out of hell to be judged, and then sent back to hell again. What did Jesus do during the three days he was in the grave? What's the difference between Hades, hell, Gehenna, and the strange place mentioned only here in Luke 16 by Jesus called the bosom of Abraham? What is the abyss, the bottomless pit, this strange place that is mentioned throughout the Bible, particularly in Revelation, and this other strange place only mentioned in 2 Peter called Tartarus? All these things are going to be illuminated and expanded upon by Jesus in this story. And there are different views among Bible scholars. As always, unsurprisingly, I'm going to teach you the one that I think is correct. All I ask is that if you disagree, which you're allowed to disagree, but if you disagree, disagree because you have done the research into the Word of God for yourself and come to a different conclusion. That's a good reason to have a different view to me. Here's what's not a good reason. I don't like the way that sounds. It's not a good reason. I don't like the way that makes me feel. Not a good reason. 
Do the research, get into the word. As I said, if I can provoke you to do that, that would be a great, great thing. And the reason I believe in the view that I'm gonna teach today is because it lines up with everything else in the Bible that talks about these subjects. That's one of the key principles of interpreting scripture is the word of God never contradicts itself. So if you have two views on a scripture and one of them contradicts something else somewhere else in the Bible, that's the wrong view. You wanna look for a view that is consistent with the rest of scripture, consistent with the character of God, and this view is, in my opinion. I also hold to my particular view because those who hold a differing view will say, Jesus is telling a parable. It's not based on reality. I will let you know one thing first. There are those who believe this is not a parable, that this is an actual historical account of something that happened, and the reason they believe that is that if this is a parable, it's the only parable where Jesus gives one of the characters a name. The name of the man is going to be Lazarus, and so there are those who say that this is not a parable. This is Jesus coming from outside of time, the only one who's been to heaven and back telling us something that actually happened. But for the sake of our study, we're not gonna make that assumption because our interpretation doesn't depend on taking that view. Here's what I want you to understand. Make a note of this. When Jesus teaches using parables, the components of his parable are all real things that exist. When Jesus teaches a parable, the components are all real things that exist. And this is the answer to those who would say, don't draw too much from this because it's just a parable. This is why we still draw a lot from it. The components of the parable are still real things. Let me explain. For example, when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Let me ask you this. Fictional story. It's a parable, but is there such a thing as a field? Is there such a thing as seed? Is there such a thing as men? Is there such a thing as wheat and tares? Does grain sprout and grow? And the answer to all these questions is obviously yes. The point being that when Jesus tells a parable, even though the account may be fictional, the components of the parable are always real things. Jesus doesn't invent a new object that no one's ever heard of in his parables. They all contain real, actual things. So that's the logic we're gonna use as we approach this text. We're not going to assume even that these events took place. We're just going to assume that like every parable Jesus ever told, the components, the environments, and the locations really do exist. So let's jump in. We're going to be in verse 19, verse 19, and it says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple. Some scholars suggest this is a princeophony, an appearance of the artist formerly known as Prince in the scriptures. We see he's clothed in purple. No name is given, so I'm, I'm just kidding, of course. And it says, and fine linen and he fared sumptuously. That just means he lived in luxury every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, you might wanna underline Lazarus, full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Very simple so far. A rich man living a life of luxury who ignores the plight of a beggar named Lazarus who was placed right at the gate to his house. And the fact that it says Lazarus was laid there tells us that Lazarus was a crippled man. The name Lazarus is a form of the name Eliezer, which means the Lord is my help. Let's keep reading verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Underline Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And, and then underline being in torments in Hades. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and then underline afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, Lazarus in his bosom. Now it gets interesting and we need to provide some explanation here. Firstly, remember that Jesus is telling this story before his death and resurrection. So this is gonna give us insight into how the afterlife worked before the death and resurrection of Jesus. So make a note of this. Jesus is describing how the afterlife worked before his death and resurrection. Before his death and resurrection. Secondly, we need to explain what Hades is. Hades is not the Greek mythological version of hell, but rather the dimension of death. That's your next fill-in. Hades is the dimension of death. Even in Greek mythology, Hades is not 
hell. Hades is the abode of the dead. And Hades here is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew word sheol. It refers to the place everybody went when they died. Before the death of Jesus on the cross, that's where everyone went. The moment you died, you were in Hades. Now write this down and we'll unpack this. Hades was divided into two sections. A place of comfort, the bosom of Abraham, and a place of torment. And we see that already from our text. We're not reading anything into this than what's already there. There's a place of comfort, that's the bosom of Abraham, and a place of torment. Now, even though it sounds like a sketchy Tel Aviv nightclub, the bosom of Abraham was meant to conjure up the image of a man being comforted against the chest of Abraham, the way you would hold your son or or a weeping person against your chest and comfort them. That's the image it's supposed to conjure up. Abraham being the father of the faith, the father of faith. And so the idea here was that it was a place of comfort far better than the earth during the Old Testament time period. It was a good, pleasant place. The bosom of Abraham is also referred to in the Bible as paradise. It's the place Jesus is talking about when he tells the believing thief next to him on the cross, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the place he's talking about, the bosom of Abraham. The place of torments in Hades is, as the text tells us, a place of torments. So please notice this, that the rich man is not in any sort of soul sleep state. There are various religions, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists will sometimes tell you they're in this soul sleep state where they're not aware of anything. Others will teach things like annihilationism, which says the non-believer is simply destroyed and it's all over. But that's not what we see Jesus describing here. He is in conscious, aware, active torment and we're going to see he has profound regrets over the missed opportunities in his own life and profound concern about his family members who may be missing opportunities at this very moment. He is fully conscious. So what determined what section you went to? Well the place of torment was for those who had rejected God and refused to look to him for salvation. The bosom of Abraham, paradise, was for those who had placed their faith and hope in God and looked to him for salvation, even before the arrival of Jesus on the earth. So after going through a list of great Old Testament saints, men and women, in Hebrews 11 called the Hall of Faith, the Apostle Paul says this about them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed, they agreed with God that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Now remember, save a very, very few exceptions, all of those who were in Hades at this time had never heard the name of Jesus. Never even heard the name of Jesus. They didn't have a New Testament. Most of them would not have understood the gospel, only a few would have. As Paul writes in Romans though, every person is judged according to the revelation of God that they've received. And Paul tells us that everybody's received revelation. Paul answers the question of what about the man in the jungle? He says the man in the jungle can look up at the stars at night and see that there is a God, there is a creator. And every person has a conscience given to them by God because we're made in the image of God. So we have the revelation of God in creation and we have the revelation of God inside of us in our conscience. So there will be people who, that's all they ever got of God. They never heard the gospel, they never heard the name of Jesus, they never read one of the scriptures, they never received it, but they responded to the revelation they received. They looked up and they said, there's a God and it's clearly not something that I can carve out of wood and put inside my hut. God's bigger than that and he recognizes that there's a conscience inside of a man And he listens to his conscience. He doesn't rebel against it. I firmly believe that what the scriptures teach is there's gonna be a lot of people in heaven like that who've never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus, but they've responded to the revelation that they have received. Paul talks about that in Romans 1, if you wanna dig into that. So those who live after Jesus' death and resurrection, you and I, we're saved by looking back to the cross. Those who lived before Jesus' death and resurrection were saved by looking ahead to it, even if all they knew was that there is a God and he deserves to be honored by the way I live my life. 
Interestingly enough, you can say it this way, write this down. Those who lived before Jesus' death and those who lived after Jesus' death are saved the same way, by faith, by faith. We look back, they looked forward. Now we get into some interesting stuff, if we weren't already there. This model is also consistent with 1 Samuel 28, one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It's not in any kid's Bible for a very good reason. Some of you will be familiar with this. There's a king named King Saul. He's in a a bind and he needs some counsel, some advice. But the wisest man who ever gave him counsel was a prophet named Samuel. And there's a problem. Samuel, who heard from God, is dead. So Saul, under the cover of darkness, seeks out a medium to conduct a seance for him. And he's saying, can you conjure up the spirit of Samuel? And the reason I like the story is because God decides to literally scare the hell out of Saul by actually sending Samuel. Like, okay, Samuel, here you go. And here's what's interesting. If you read that account, you will find Saul, the medium, and Samuel himself all refer to Samuel being brought up. And the medium will say that he is ascended out of the earth. And if you read through the whole Bible, the location of heaven geographically is always up. Always up. Everyone goes up to Jerusalem. Everyone lifts their eyes to the heaven. That's what Jesus does when he prays to his father. So even though we know there's dimensionality involved in things like that, the geographic location of heaven is up. The geographic location of Hades, the abode of the dead, is always in the scriptures down. And in 1 Samuel 28, you have Samuel, who everybody knows is saved, is one of God's guys coming up from out of the earth. Why? Because he was not yet in heaven. He was somewhere else. He was in Hades. He's in the bosom of Abraham. Let's see what else we learn as the story continues. Verse 24. Then he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented, underline tormented in this flame, underline flame. Again, we see that the rich man is in very real agony. He's begging for just a drop of water on his tongue. So I want you to make a note of this. The rich man's torment is real. It's real. It's not metaphorical. It's not allegorical. It is literal and real. Verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime, You received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now, underline, he is comforted, and then underline, you are tormented. He is comforted, and you are tormented. That's how we know that the bosom of Abraham is the place of comfort, while the other side of Hades is a place of torment. So already, hopefully, we're all on the same page. Luke 16 is very clear that there are two compartments, if you will, to Hades. There's the place of comfort, and there's the place of torments. Verse 26, and besides all this, and then underline the rest of verse 26, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those pass from there to us. You see, there is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. There's no place to work out your karma in the afterlife. When you die, Your decision has been made already. It's not a matter of what your will is. It's not a matter of changing your mind. There's a gap between the place of comfort and the place of torment that no one can cross. So make a note of this. Death renders your eternal destination irreversible. Death renders your eternal destination irreversible. It is the line for which there are no exceptions. Your choice has been made when you die. As a side note, I can't take the time to fully explain all this right now, but I can set you off on your own investigation in the scriptures. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. We'll be done in like two minutes and we'll be right back on track. I'm just going to take one minute for the Bible students among us who would be interested in this. It's my personal speculation that between the place of torments and the side of Hades that is paradise, in this great gulf which is described here, is the bottomless pit, the abyss, the abusos. And this would be the place 
where the Lord has chained up those angels who conspired to create the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Second Peter and Jude tell us that the Lord has imprisoned the fallen angels who were behind the conspiracy of Genesis 6 in the abyss, the abusos. It's actually called Tartarus in only one place in the Bible. I believe that's 2 Peter. This could be the same abyss that the demons begged Jesus not to cast them into when he cast them out of the demoniac of the Gadarenes. You'll remember the story. It's the one where the demons request instead to go to the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff and go into the sea. But they begged Jesus, if you read that story, do not send us into the abyss. It is the worst, lowest place in Hades. This is the same abyss from which those angels who are imprisoned will be released during the fifth trumpet judgment of Revelation 9 following the rapture. It's the same abyss from which the beast arises to kill the two witnesses in Revelation 11. It's the same abyss where Satan will be bound and imprisoned for the thousand years of the millennium in Revelation 20. And I put all those references on your outline. You can look it up on your own this week. Verse 27 Then he, the rich man, said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's basically saying they have the scriptures. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, Underline the whole thing here in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Though one rise from the dead. We notice that the rich man never objects to the fairness of him being in the place of torments. We never hear him say, I got a bum deal. I got scammed. I don't deserve to be here because when you are in the place of torments, you know that you deserve to be there. I really believe on the day of judgment, when everything is laid bare, nobody will even have to tell those who are condemned. They'll condemn themselves because when it's all laid out and God is right there, it will be obvious, I can't go to be with God. I can't do it. And this man spends his whole life, his whole existence now, fully conscious of every wrong thing that he's ever done. You know, we're so gracious to ourselves. We're more gracious than we realize. I know some of us struggle with shame and not getting past our mistakes, but most of us are geniuses at forgetting our mistakes. We forget the horrible thought we had toward the driver in front of us on the way to church this morning. We already forgave ourselves for that, right? We already let it go. The cursing we did towards someone in the supermarket who was taking so long to go through the checkout aisle. All that stuff, we just forget it. But in eternity, when you're condemned, you are aware of all those things every moment of every day. And this man doesn't object to where he is. He knows that he had opportunities to turn to the Lord and he declined them. He declined them. He knows he had opportunities. We also notice that the rich man knows exactly what his brothers would need to do to not end up where he is. Make a note of this. He knows exactly what his brothers would need to do in order to be saved. It's repent. He says it himself. Repent. That's what they need to do. Repent doesn't mean say sorry. Repent means change direction. It means change your mind. Have a change of mind about who is the God of your life. Say it's no longer you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so he says, if my brothers would do this, then they would be saved. When we repent, we change our mind about being the God of our own lives and instead submit our lives to the Lord where we find grace and mercy through Jesus. You know, God doesn't send anybody to hell. He doesn't send anybody to hell. They send themselves there by rejecting his call, his invitation, and the way that he's made for them to be saved through Jesus to join them in heaven. You see, you can't have it both ways. You can't have free will and a God that forces you to listen to him. You cannot have both of those things. And the Lord, because he understands that love cannot exist without free will. Love has to be a choice. Otherwise, it's not love. It's programming. If love is going to exist, then free will must exist. And if free will is going to exist, then there has to be the choice to reject God. 
There has to be the choice to reject God. God doesn't send anybody to hell. They send themselves by rejecting his offer of salvation. Rejecting his offer of salvation. Nobody will end up, just think about this. Nobody will end up in hell because of their sin. Jesus has died for their sin. They will end up in hell for rejecting Jesus. God's provision for having their sins forgiven. To escape danger, one must first recognize that it exists. The word salvation itself presupposes a prior damnation. Salvation can't even exist as a concept unless damnation is the default. I'm so struck by the words of Jesus when he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus is saying the scriptures, the gospel, is the most powerful thing in existence for overcoming disbelief. More powerful than if he were to raise someone from the dead. That's what Jesus is saying. Saying if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe the scriptures, it doesn't matter what sign I do. It doesn't matter if I tell that dead guy, hey, come up from the dead. It doesn't matter. There's nothing more powerful than the word of God. According to Jesus himself, and I pray God would help me and help us to remember that there's no greater argument, there's no greater proof, evidence, or sign, or or presentation than the word of God. Getting somebody into the word of God. That's what Jesus himself says. If you can get anybody to do anything, give them one of the gospels of John that we have and just say, just read this. Just read this. And Jesus is saying that's the best argument for who God is. That's the best thing there is. And when you read the tenses and the verbiage of the last several verses we've read, you can go back and read it over again, but you'll find that it points toward Hades being a place that exists in linear time, parallel to our own timeline. Make a note of this. In other words, time in Hades is parallel to the earth. Time in Hades is parallel to the earth. God, heaven, we know, exists outside of time. We know that because of the way the Bible is constructed. There is prophecy in the Bible. There is coding in the Bible that can only be placed there by an author who exists outside of time. The Bible says, I am the Lord. There is none like me discerning the end from the beginning. The beginning from the end. The Alpha and the Omega. God is outside of time, but God is not in Hades. Hades exists parallel to time on earth. I don't know how trippy you want to get with this, but obviously it exists in another dimension, but it literally could be anywhere physically. It could be beneath us, depending how weird you want to get with that. I won't go any further. I'll just leave you hanging right there. The bosom of Abraham is is named to conjure up the imagery of comfort. But why do they need comforting? Why do they need comforting? For the reason we just said, while it is a restful place, while it is a peaceful place, a pleasant place, a place better than earth, it's missing the one thing they all want the most, the Lord, the Lord. It's missing the Lord. For you see, existing in real time, parallel to time on the earth, Jesus had not yet died as the payment for their sins. So they could not ascend to heaven to the presence of God because their sin was not yet paid for. They were waiting for the work Jesus was going to do on the cross. Those in the place of torment, write this down, await judgment. Those in the place of torment await judgment. Specifically, they await the great white throne judgment, which takes place at the end of the millennium in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, it gives us more detail and tells us that Hades itself, the whole dimension of death, will be cast into the lake of fire which is what we call hell, and the Hebrews called Gehenna. So just so we know, hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire, is a place which may or may not exist right now, but there's nothing in it right now. It is a place where Satan and his demons are cast at the end of the millennium in Revelation 20, and Hades itself is thrown into this lake of fire at the end of the millennium. Those in the bosom of Abraham awaited salvation for God to make a way for their sins to be forgiven so they could ascend to heaven to the presence of God. And so I can't help myself from making this detour. I gotta finish the story. 
I got to tell you what happened around the cross with regards to Hades. So I put all these on your outline so that you can follow through these verses with me. First Peter tells us that one of the things Jesus did during the three days he was in the grave is he took a victory lap. He took a victory lap. Check it out. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also, and then underline this, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Here's an interesting thing. You get into the original language. The word spirits there is not talking about the kind of spirit that you and I have. That word spirits is only used in scripture in reference to angels. Here's what you need to know as well. Fallen angels are still angels. They're fallen angels. They don't become demons. Just like if you are a person, if you are a Canadian or a Chilean, you are still a person, whether you are a Chilean person or a Canadian person. There are angels who are allied to Jesus Christ, and there are fallen angels who are allied to Satan. So this term is only used, spirits, to refer to angels or fallen angels. So who are they? And why are they in prison? Well, he's actually gonna tell us, let's keep reading. Underline this, who formerly were disobedient, who formerly were disobedient. So in a previous time, they rebelled against God. So these gotta be fallen angels. Maybe we can get some more information. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Underline, in the days of Noah. So that's just saying, while God showed his incredible patience in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So these spirits, these fallen angels, were put in prison, it says, for being disobedient, and it even tells us when, in the days of Noah. If you know your Bible, you know there is only one group of fallen angels who are described in the days of Noah. There's only one, so it cannot be confusing. But this verse only makes sense if you're willing to accept the view that those fallen angels talked about in the days of Noah are in fact fallen angels. A lot of people don't want to accept that because it's really, really weird. But again, that's not a good reason to hold a view. It's in Genesis 6, and some of you know the story as crazy as it sounds. This is what happens. Genesis 3, the first prophecy in the Bible appears when the Lord condemns Satan, and he says he's going to send a savior. He's going to make a way for sin to be forgiven through the seed of a woman. And that's when he says to Satan, you will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. We don't realize what Satan does when God says that is he says, oh, okay, Now I know what God's plan is. It's going to be through the seed of a woman. It's going to be a child born from a woman. That's what God is going to do. And again, I wish I had time to unpack this. We might unpack this in a few weeks. All I can do is give you the bottom line, which is going to sound absolutely crazy to some of you, but hopefully we'll get you on Google today. Here's the bottom line. Genesis 6, just three chapters later, Satan sends a group of fallen angels to the earth. We know that angels, as we read our Bibles, are able to move back and forth between the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension. We see them in scripture eating food. We see them taking people by the hand and leading them. They have physical bodies. Genesis 6 describes in a few short verses fallen angels coming to the earth, having sex with women, creating an offspring called the Nephilim, and their defining genetic trait is that they were giants. They were giants. These are the giants who show up in the promised land when Joshua and the 12 spies go there. This is the giant from which the Philistines are descended, where Goliath comes from. And Satan does this because his plan is to genetically corrupt the human race so that Messiah cannot be born from the seed of a woman. Because God cannot come if every person in the world has part fallen angel DNA. As wacky as that sounds, that's what's going on in Genesis 6. And your head's got to be spinning right now. And you're just waiting for me to say, okay, we're selling tickets to the compound. You want to get in in the first stage of selling so that there's room in the bunker for you, but that's not what we're going to do. Don't worry. I just encourage you to check it out. And if you get into that, you're going to find there's only two views. There's the angel incursion view, which is what we're talking about. And there's another view called the Sethite theory. If you dig into the problems with the Sethite theory, it falls apart very quick. It was a theory invented by a guy in the third century, literally because, I kid you not, non-believing academics were saying, you are out of your mind for believing 
in this. You're crazy. So he came up with this view, which was more palatable, but doesn't line up with scripture because the Sethite view doesn't explain why there were giants in their offspring, and it doesn't explain what in the world Peter is talking about here if he's not talking about that. You got a real problem if you don't believe the angel incursion view with interpreting what Peter is saying right here. So I'm sorry to leave you hanging, but in a few weeks, maybe we'll unpack that more when we study the days of Noah a little bit more. Well, Jude tells us what the Lord did with these fallen angels as well. In Jude 6, it says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, and then underline this on your outlines, the whole thing, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The judgment of the great day. Now, isn't it interesting that he doesn't say he's reserved them for judgment. He says he's reserved them for the judgment of the great day. For indeed, they are going to be used by the Lord as part of his wrath being poured out on the earth during the great tribulation. As we said earlier, they're going to be released to literally raise hell on the earth and torment humanity as the locusts that come out of the pit that are described as the fifth trumpet judgment in Revelation 9. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, get the jump drive, give it a listen. All that to say, that Peter tells us Jesus went and preached to these fallen angels who are in prison, in Hades, in Tartarus, in this deepest, darkest part of Hades, sometimes during the three days that his body lay in the grave. So what is he preaching to them? What is Jesus saying to these worst and most powerful of Satan's forces? I believe he's saying, listen up, listen up. You now have no claim to those who've placed their faith in me. Tell your boss. Tell all the boys that they're paid for, they're bought with a price, and they belong to me now, and the rules have changed. See, it was a victory lap. And that's not all Jesus does while he's in Hades during those three days. As we said before, whenever the Bible talks about heaven, heaven is always up. It's where you ascend to. Hades is always down. It's where you descend to. Quoting Psalm 68, again, it's on your outline, Paul writes this in Ephesians. He says, when he ascended on high, underline that. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, and then also underline, he led captivity captive. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended, underline that, and then underline into the lower parts of the earth, into the lower parts of the earth. That's describing Jesus descending into Hades before he ascended to heaven. And again, can't get too into this because we have limited time in this chapter, but it's describing something else Jesus did during those three days he was in his earthly grave when he descended into Hades. And what, what a moment this must have been. What a moment this must have been. All those believers who are in the bosom of Abraham, hoping, waiting, longing, there really came a day as Jesus' body lay in the tomb when he showed up in Hades and said to them, it's finished, let's go, let's go. And this verse, Psalm 68, quoted by Paul in Ephesians 4, is describing that moment. I like the way the New Living says it. It says, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives, a crowd of captives. What a moment that was. He emptied paradise in Hades, he emptied it. Some of you will remember the time Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads part of Isaiah 61. And when you understand what happened in Hades during those three days, you understand what Jesus was really talking about when he read the prophecy of himself that said, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's why this is so powerful when in Revelation 1, John sees Jesus and he describes him this way. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. 
I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And then underline this, and I hold the keys of death and Hades, death and the grave. And some of those believers who were in the bosom of Abraham when Jesus came to set them free, some of you will recall that some of them got asked to make a pit stop on the way between paradise and heaven. In Matthew 27, we read that when Jesus rose from the dead, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's just staggering. We forget that that happened. Jesus is raised from the dead. There are suddenly hundreds of people who've died a week, a month, a couple of years ago. And they're raised from the dead and they walk around and tell people, Jesus is God. He's alive. How do you know? Well, because I was just in Hades and he showed up and here I am now. Unbelievable. So the current situation is this. The bosom of Abraham, paradise. It's either empty, depending on how you want to view it, or it's been relocated into heaven, into the presence of God. Through Jesus, there's now no need to wait. All those who place their trust in him go immediately to be with him following their earthly death. That's why Paul Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. There's no waiting. We go immediately to be with the Lord, and we're so grateful for that. However, the place of torment, and Hades is still very much occupied. Those who are condemned there await their coming judgment, which will take place at the end of the millennium. Let's go back to the text. I just want to read verses 30 and 31 again. It says, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And obviously there's a tragic, prophetic aspect to what Jesus is saying because he would indeed rise from the dead, but the reaction of the Pharisees would simply be to try to cover it up, to bribe Roman officials, to try and cover the whole thing up. And it always amazes me, I was talking with a friend, when they're getting together and they're conspiring to cover up the resurrection of Jesus, how does nobody say, are any of us gonna talk about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Anybody going to bring that up as we're figuring out how to cover this up? Anybody going to actually deal with the fact he's risen from the dead? I think there's a good chance perhaps Nicodemus might have said that. Maybe a few others, but it's not recorded. Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And isn't it interesting that whether this is a true historical account or a parable, the name of the man is Lazarus. I find that very interesting because I imagine Jesus going, there was a guy... His name was, let's go with Lazarus. Let's go with Lazarus. And it's fascinating because in the timeline, just a week or two after this, we're going to reach John 11 where Jesus is going to raise his dear friend, Lazarus, from the dead. And as Jesus states in this parable, Lazarus being raised from the dead will not result in those who don't want to believe in Jesus turning to Jesus. In fact, let me read to you what happens when we reach John 12. It'll say, now a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. He's risen him from the dead? Well, we got to kill him. That's their response, not he rose from the dead, so maybe we should listen to the guy. When a person is unwilling to believe in the Lord, unwilling, the Lord can make the dead show up alive right in front of their faces and it won't change their mind. When a person is unwilling to believe, they become unable to believe regardless of the evidence. Miracles and signs don't produce faith. They only produce a hunger for more miracles and signs. The person who says, if God would give me a sign I'd believe, is lying to themselves. They're lying to themselves. A lack of evidence is not the issue. There's evidence everywhere. And yet the Lord says, if the word of God's not enough to open a person's eyes, it doesn't matter if the dead are raised, they won't change their mind. In conclusion, let me say this, the reality of heaven and hell should preempt 
everything else in our daily lives. It should come before everything else because it's the greater reality. Heaven and hell are really real and everything in this life really is going to fade away. Whole earth is gonna end up in fire one day. The universe is gonna be destroyed one day. Only what we've done for the Lord is gonna continue on into eternity. And Jesus made us aware of true reality, of eternity, so that we don't waste our lives on a temporary reality. You know, in the place of torment, everyone understands eternal reality. When he was on the earth, the rich man was unwilling to see afar off. He was unwilling to see the big picture. But when he was in Hades, now he could see afar off. Now he could see Abraham. Now he could see the full ramifications of his decisions in life. In the place of torment, everyone's aware of what a wretched sinner they are. They're all aware of it. Do you notice that in the place of torment, everyone has an urgency about the gospel? Everyone is seemingly praying for missionaries to be sent out with the message. Even those in the place of torment, now that they're there, they pray. Now that they're there, they call upon the Lord. Now that they're there, they pray for missionaries to be sent to their family and friends with the gospel. They got a sense of urgency about the gospel now. In the place of torment, everyone understands they're deserving what they receive and As weird as it sounds, it would be good if we would be a little bit more like them, a little bit more like those who are condemned right now, that we would grasp the reality of eternity, that we would grasp what wretched sinners we are by nature so that we can more greatly appreciate the undeserved grace and mercy we have through Jesus, that we would have a sense of urgency about the gospel, praying for boldness, praying for missionaries, praying for opportunities to get the message to those who need to hear it. Look for chances to share your faith. Look for chances to get the word of God into someone's hands. Keep grinding, keep hoping, keep praying, keep asking for boldness. Don't grow weary of doing good. Paradise, the bosom of Abraham, it's as empty as the grave in which they laid the body of Jesus because he is alive. And the reason we gather together on a Sunday morning to sing, to study the scriptures, to take communion, to pray together, to just be together is because we can't get over what Jesus has done for us. We can't get over what Jesus has done for us. That's the way to live your whole life. Why do you live this way? Why do you make these sacrifices? Why do you serve here? Why do you not do these things? Because I I can't get over what Jesus has done for me. I, I can't get over it. I've seen afar off and I understand who I am and I understand what he's done for me and I can't get over it. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. It's on your outlines. He says, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I love that. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, I pray for for all of us, Lord. We know that those, as difficult as it is to think about, who, who are in the place of torment right now, they see clearly, and they see clearly with great regret. Father, would you help us to see clearly, to see afar off right now for our future benefit, for our future profit. Father, would you help us to have an urgency with the gospel knowing that heaven and hell are are realities, would you help us to pray along with the will of your kingdom that the lost would come to know you? Would you give us the heart of the shepherd who's looking for the lost sheep? Would you give us the heart of the father who looks out every day longing to see his wayward son return? Thank you for showing us reality, God, so that we don't waste our lives on what is just a dim reflection of reality. 
Thank you for showing us the truth, Lord God. Father, we do pray this morning for, for the lost family members, the lost spouses, the lost coworkers, friends, and neighbors. Father, would you reveal yourself to them? Lord, we don't have a perfect solution of how to share you with them, but we, we need you to show us. Would you fill us with boldness by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, to share the truth with them while we have time, while we have time. Give us your boldness, Holy Spirit. Give us your heart, Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you made a way for us to be with you. Thank you that there's no waiting for us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Thank you that you are the one who holds the keys of death in Hades. You are the one who holds those keys. There's no power in death for those of us who have placed our hope in you. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to wonder. We know that what's waiting on the other side is you. Thank you for making it so. And thank you for letting us know that you've done that for us. We love you so much for that, Lord. I encourage everyone to take communion in this coming time of worship and just thank God for what he's done for you, the victory he gained, where he went for you, what he went through for you. Just say thank you and be awed and overwhelmed all over again. and Be grateful all over again. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.